some jokes and I didn't really like them. So I went with my own story. <laughs> so um, an elderly man in Phoenix calls his son in New York and says, I hate to ruin your day, but I have to tell you that your mother and I are divorcing. 45 years of misery is enough. Pop, what are you talking about, the son screams. We can't stand the sight of each other any longer, the old man says. We're sick of each other, and I'm sick of talking about this. So you call your sister in Chicago and tell her. And he hangs up. Frantic, the son calls his sister, who explodes on the phone. They're not getting divorced if I have anything to do about it, she shouts. I'll take care of this. She calls Phoenix immediately and screams, you are not getting divorced. Don't do a single thing till I get there. I'm calling my brother back, and we'll both be there tomorrow. Until then, don't do a thing. Do you hear me? And hangs up. The old man hangs up his phone and turns to his wife and says, okay, they're coming for Thanksgiving. Now what do we tell them for Christmas? <laughs> so, I thought it was funny. <laughs> anyway. So like I said, I'm filling in for my mom today. I'm going to be reading her lecture on 2 Thessalonians 2. So let's get started. <laughs> um, false teaching and error regarding prophetic future events is nothing new. Evil world powers that rise up throughout all of human history is nothing new either. Remember the cruelty of Nero burning believers alive in his garden in Rome, monarchs and world leaders burning believers at the stake for standing for the truth, Hitler and Stalin arrived in more recent history as vicious powers putting to death untold numbers of people. But there is one coming who will make all these evils look small by comparison. He is the wicked Antichrist, the man of lawlessness spoken of in our study today. This person has not yet appeared in history, but he will rise very suddenly at the start of the great day of the Lord as the tribulation begins. Due to false teachers, the believers in Thessalonica were once again confused about the end times. They had been given clear instruction about the rapture in his first letter, as well as the day of the Lord. But now they found themselves enduring terrible persecution, as well as a false letter of deception. So they found themselves confused yet again. In our study, we'll see truths found only here in Scripture. Our study today should help us to have greater clarity of end-time events, so we are never deceived by error as well. How many people think that they will go through the horrors of the end times and have prepared for it by gathering guns, stockpiling food, and building secret hiding places? Error always produces problems, and this error the church had been exposed to had caused their composure to be shaken. So Paul teaches them about the tribulation and proves to them that they are not in the midst of it. This chapter is Paul giving doctrinal correction to help them in their understanding of the day of the Lord. So the first thing is the error concerning the tribulation, verses one and, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to affect the day of the Lord has come. The first thing Paul does is to appeal to them in the interest of the truth concerning the Lord's coming. Specifically, he's referring to the truth he had taught them in 1 Thessalonians 4 about the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. He requests or implores or even pleads with them as he's about to address the error that they had been told. The error concerned the coming of our Lord and our gathering together with him. 
This is one and the same event. He's speaking of the Lord Jesus coming in the atmosphere of earth to gather the believers to himself at the rapture of the church. Because they were suffering so terribly, they had come to think that they had missed the rapture and found themselves stuck in the tribulation and the great day of the Lord. Paul did not want them to be so quickly shaken or disturbed by a message or letter as if it was from Paul. Satan is so deceptive and so crafty in his technique to confuse even grounded believers. What appeared to be a truly authentic and divine proclamation came across as if it were an apostle speaking a divine message from God. So now the assumption is that Paul said the tribulation had arrived via a forgery letter from false teachers. Clearly, Paul had taught them differently when he was with them, as well as in his first letter when he taught the church escapes this day of the Lord, where God deals directly with sin. We saw last time that this expression found in the Old Testament books of Isaiah, Joel, and Amos is a time of God dealing directly with men in extreme judgment on the earth. Due to all that they were suffering, they were vulnerable to believe this lie. This deception had robbed them of their hope and joy. Satan uses doctrinal error to destroy believers so they are tossed about by every wind of doctrine, by deceitful scheming, Ephesians 4.14. Ladies, there is nothing new under the sun. Satan wants to deceive you and me through error. This is why it is critical that we are dressed for battle with the helmet of salvation, which protects our minds from Satan's doubts and deceptions. How many books have been written in just our lifetime declaring error regarding Jesus and his return? Remember back in the 80s when a man named Edgar Wissenant wrote an entire book stating there are 88 reasons why Christ will return in 1988. A bit off, right? <laughs> there have been countless other such books promoting error and claiming that they know the date when Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour of his return. People in the tribulation will realize they are truly close to his second coming and how many people have dogmatically named names of individuals thinking that they are identifying the Antichrist? Error on this subject is nothing new. So Paul corrects their error. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved." For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Paul didn't want them to be deceived by error, and he certainly didn't want them to forget all that he had clearly taught them. Paul reminds them what they had already been taught. In correcting them, we learn of important truths unique to this passage of the Bible. Verse 3, the day of the Lord cannot come until three things occur. They could not be in the tribulation because these things hadn't happened yet. So what exactly are these events? Number one, the apostasy or the rebellion and revolt from the word of God. Throughout all of church history, there's always been apostasy or departure from the truth of scripture. 
But this deliberate abandonment of a former professed faith will actually characterize the end times. 1 Timothy 4.3 and 2 Timothy 3.1-5. This apostasy will be so blasphemous and so widespread, so dramatic and shocking that it will be clear for all to see. Certainly the mindset of the ecumenical movement of our day is how the way will be paved for there to be a one-world false church. In this movement, there is no need for Bible doctrine on which to be unified by. Instead, the focus is on social actions, experiences, and emotions. Apostasy is not just a failure to believe. It's an aggressive revolt against what you once professed to believe in. It is done by those who claim to be saved, but they're not. Once the church is raptured, those who merely claim to be Christians will feel free to abandon their professions and show their true colors. There will be a worldwide anti-biblical God movement. This apostasy will bring such blasphemous acts that it must be connected to the key person associated with it, the man of lawlessness. Another event that must take place is the revealing of the man of lawlessness. This is the one we call the Antichrist. He's given 30 different titles in the Bible, but in this passage, he's called the man of sin or lawlessness and the son of destruction. This is the final Antichrist who will arrive on the scene. He will be so completely devoted to the destruction of anything that relates to God and his purposes or plans. He will bring such horrific destruction, and he will also experience destruction himself. Only Judas was also named the son of destruction. This man will be alive before the tribulation begins, but he will only be revealed or made known when he rises on the scene and makes a peace covenant with Israel. Of course, there have been many antichrists throughout all of human history who have accomplished great evil, but this is the culmination of the worst antichrist that has not yet been made known. In verse 4, Paul continues to explain antichrist. He will rise quickly on the political scene. He'll appear to be a friend of religion and a friend of Israel, but his true colors will come out for all to see when he commits blasphemy against God and opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, Revelation 13, 15. He will be Satan's man. Satan has desired to be worshipped since he fell, Isaiah 14. The way this man of sin demands worship is to be taken, um, taking his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Daniel 9 tells us that the, at the beginning of the tribulation, the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel to protect her. The temple will clearly have to be rebuilt, and I can tell you that everything's already been prepared for that, and there is a movement in Israel just waiting to start temple worship again. Every instrument spoken of by Moses has been made, and they are ready for the new temple. But halfway through the tribulation, he will break his covenant with Israel and establish himself as the one to be worshipped. That's when Jesus warned Jewish people alive at that time to flee to the mountains, run for your lives, hope you are not pregnant or nursing so you're not slowed down. Obviously today, we don't know who this Antichrist is. We don't know if he's been born yet or if he's a child or a young adult. At this point in verse 5, Paul stops and says, he had taught them these things when they were together. Probably he just wants to reassure them that he had not changed his theological position on these matters. And up to this point, Paul had told them the apostasy must occur and the Antichrist must be revealed. Now he goes on in verse 6 and 7 to explain what else will happen. The restrainer is removed. And you know what restrains him now. 
Paul is reminding them that the day of the Lord hadn't yet taken place because the restrainer is still holding down the coming of the Antichrist. When the restrainer is gone, all hell will break loose. So who's the restrainer? Some people thought it was human government, the nation of Israel, Satan, or Michael the archangel. The only one strong enough to hold back Satan is God. Specifically, we're told in scripture that it is God, the Holy Spirit, who is responsible to restrain sin. The Holy Spirit's unique ministry of indwelling believers will be over. He will remain on the earth, but not in the same sense that he indwells believers who help restrain sin. When we say the Spirit of God is removed, we're not saying his presence is no longer on the earth. The Spirit of God will continue to work in people's hearts. Many unsaved people will be saved. The Spirit will work as he did in Old Testament times. So how will the Spirit be removed? He's removed because the church has been raptured, so his ministry of restraining sin through believers will be removed. The presence of the church restrains all kinds of evil. Imagine how wicked this world will be um, without the presence of believers who are the salt of the earth. If you know Christ, then your very presence at work, in your community, and even in your home ought to hold back evil from full expression. Imagine no one with a godly moral code in all of world governments. Sin will have free reign in the hearts of people. Next, we're going to see the truth about the Antichrist. Verses 8 through 12. In these verses, Paul's going to expand on what he's been saying about the Antichrist. These believers, and by way of application, us as well, need to know these important truths. In spite of the evil in this world and the future times of the Antichrist arriving on the scene, God is still sovereign. This is all his plan, and it will come about just as he told us it will. God is far more powerful than Satan, and this is proven in how he deals with the Antichrist. Verses 8 through 12. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. The lawless one will be revealed, and this happens when the Holy Spirit restraint stops. Antichrist will then show the depths of his evil nature when he desecrates the temple and claims he's God. God will have been judging the earth the first half of the tribulation, but now those judgments will intensify as the day of the Lord arrives in fury. It's the Holy Spirit who keeps restraining Satan. Otherwise, he'd be here already. If no one restrained Satan, he would gather the entire realm to attack God with all that he has. But he can't do that yet because God is holding him down. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Clearly, this world system operates against the laws of God. But why is it called a mystery? Behind all the evil going on in this world right now and in this moment is Satan. He is the God of this world. The Antichrist cannot come until God stops restraining Satan's program. And how will Satan do this? He has his special man, but not until God says he can carry out his plan. The conflict, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. It's only a matter of time before the Antichrist and Jesus meet face to face in conflict. Without giving us the details of this moment, Paul tells us Christ is going to win decisively. When Jesus returns at his second coming, he puts an end to the career of the Antichrist. He will slay him with the breath of his mouth, which probably means by his word. At the appearance of his coming in his glorified presence, Antichrist will be defeated and paralyzed by a direct encounter with Jesus. The details are given in Revelation 19 and 20. 
From this truth, we are reminded that the Lord could put Satan out of power at any moment, but he has not yet done so because he's using Satan to accomplish his purposes. That includes events that God allows to happen in our lives. God wants to develop our character and make us godly, and he can even use attacks from Satan, which Satan intends for evil, but God makes it great gain for growth in our lives. The converts of the Antichrist is in verses 9 through 12. The one who is coming in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. As I said before, Satan has only wanted one thing in this world, and that is to have people worship him. So how will he gain converts to worship him? He's going to have a ministry that is totally counterfeit of Christ's ministry. Jesus was empowered by the Spirit of God, so the Antichrist will be empowered by Satan, as seen in this verse. As the one empowering the Antichrist, Satan will enable him to perform miracles. He will have power so he can perform miracles. He will show signs, miracles that have meaning as they point people to the Antichrist as being God. There will be false wonders, so the people will be in awe of these miraculous things, even though they come from falsehood. This man will do things to convince people that he's God, in much the same way Jesus did miracles to convince people of the truth that he is God. An important truth to remember is this. Miracles alone never prove someone is from God. You must listen to the message and observe the character of someone. Satan can perform miraculous miracles just like he did in the leaders in Pharaoh's court during Moses' day, or just as he did with an unbeliever like Judas. So I plead with you, ladies, do not be gullible if you hear someone claiming great miracles on TV or in books or articles. Always check out the message that they proclaim and the character of the person. The purpose of God's miracles are to lead people to the truth. The purpose of Satan's miracles are to lead people to believe his lies. These miracles are real, and they will persuade people to believe Satan's lies. Verse 10, with all the deception of wickedness, Satan will convince people of a lie because they've rejected God's truth. They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. The evil and deadly influence of the Antichrist will deceive the whole world who will be required to receive the mark of the beast and worship his image. Those who refuse will be killed. People are responsible for their own perishing because they rejected the truth. Verse 11, for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Because of their rejection of the gospel, God will send a deluding influence or a powerful working of error. This doesn't mean God forces them to be deceived, but it does mean that if a person rejects the gospel, they voluntarily open the door to delusion, and God will see that they get all the delusion that they want. It's a very dangerous thing to continually hear the truth of the gospel message and reject it. If someone hardens their hearts to the point that they make a final rejection of Christ, then God allows their hearts to harden. And those who are not willing to repent are not able to repent. If you do not stand for the truth, you will fall for error. Have you ever noticed how so many people who have been raised in a solid church background are the very ones involved in some far-out cult? This is the same truth presented to us in Romans where God rejected man and went his own way, and then God punishes man by giving him his own way. In the tribulation, people will reject the gospel, so God will let them have error. They will reject God as God, so God will let them accept the Antichrist as God. This is what he means by them believing a lie. The rapture of the church and the start of the tribulation could begin any moment. 
Those who have never trusted Christ for salvation need to make sure they do it now so that their hearts don't get harder to the truth and more vulnerable to Satan's lies. I'm so grateful for all of you who come to Bible study to learn God's truth. We all have to respond to the truth. There is no straddling the fence when it comes to God's word. To put off making a decision to follow him and commit your life to him is dangerous ground. What we've seen from Paul so far is that he wants these persecuted believers to realize they have been deceived. He wants them to be assured and confident they're not in the tribulation, nor would they ever be. He wants them to hold on to the truths of what they had been taught. So verse 13 tells us, know who you are. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God's chosen you from the beginning of salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Paul was so thankful for them. They're not anti-Christ converts who will die. They're the chosen ones of Christ who are saved. God loves them. God's chosen them. The word chosen means picked, as seen in Hebrews 11.25. Again, we see the doctrine of divine election presented in Scripture. God makes the choice, but scripture always presents that each individual has the responsibility to believe the gospel. Somehow God works all this out, and it is his work through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in our hearts and sets us apart unto him. We have the responsibility to believe the truth. This teaching that Paul's giving these believers was to encourage them and remind them they're different than the people who will follow the Antichrist. They are not the people who are in the tribulation. Rather, they're chosen and called by God. They have believed the truth, not a lie. Therefore, they gain the glory of the Lord, as verse 14 states. Stand firm. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or letter from us. Paul doesn't want them to be shaken. By tradition, Paul refers to things handed down. These are not a reference to man-made religious ideas, but rather the gospel message which Paul had received from the Lord and passed on to the believers. He wants them to have a firm grasp on the truth so that they would not get tangled up with new ideas. This applies to us as well, ladies. How many new ideas keep coming down the Christian pipeline meant to confuse believers and get them off track? Be alert and beware. Verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who's loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. These verses give such good comfort and hope. It's God who helps us maintain a stable and strong testimony in everything we say and do. This benediction of Paul asks God's power to be in their lives based on his love and grace. God is the God of eternal comfort and good hope by grace. I ask you again, are you living your life in light of his return? We are not to be ignorant of end times, nor forgetful or deceived. As Titus reminds us, we are going to be looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What an encouragement for each one of us who know Christ. I don't know about you, but I need his eternal comfort and hope. This is how we can press on and do the next thing. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you that we could hear your word. I pray that you would help us to apply it to our lives and live in light of your return at any moment. In your name, amen.